Welcome to the Sermon Audio Podcast of Hill Country Bible Church, Georgetown. The podcast bringing you biblical messages that encourage you to put Christ at the center of everyday life. We're here to help you engage in the local church and to invite you into a life that matters through Jesus. If you have any questions about your next step, visit us online at hillcountry.life. And now for today's message. One of the reasons we respect certain people in life is their response to adversity. Am I right? The people we respect the most are generally people who have walked through a fire or two. We respect people who have been hurt but didn't hurt back. People who were treated unjustly, unfairly, but didn't strike back. We respect people who have faced extraordinary health challenges but didn't fall into despair or lose their love for life. And that's because they exercised their superpower. It's a power we all have. And when exercised properly, it actually keeps us from becoming like our enemies. It keeps us from reflecting our circumstances. And it even allows us to redeem suffering and thwart evil. So this morning, we're wrapping up this series called The Best Life Possible. And we've been talking about things we can implement in our lives in order to live what Jesus called the abundant life. You know, in John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, last week I talked about how even in the midst of trials, we can live this abundant life. And it has to do with engaging our superpower, this special ability we have that empowers us to be better for anything that life throws at us. And our superpower is simply this. It's our respond ability our ability to respond thoughtfully rather than simply react to the circumstances that come our way in life. You know, most people feel controlled by their circumstances and they live their lives that way. So here's the point of today's message. When we simply react, we actually relinquish control of our lives and ultimately our destiny and legacy. But a measured, thought-through, faith-filled response ensures that that doesn't happen. Now, there's a reason we miss this. Here's the catch. The response that has the potential to reverse the natural course of things isn't natural. The best response is often the least intuitive response. And because of that, we tend to miss it. So to illustrate this, last week we started walking through the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. If you missed last week, go back and check it out. Because I think better than any other story I've ever heard in all of literature, Joseph's story illustrates the course-reversing power of a measured, faith-filled response. And like you and me, Joseph didn't know the end of his story. In fact, Joseph didn't even know there was a story worth telling. But throughout his story and throughout his circumstances, he chose the unusual, unexpected response time and time again. So let me catch you up to where we left off last time. Okay, here's Joseph's resume. Here's a synopsis of his life so far. Joseph, Jacob's son, kidnapped once by his brothers, sold twice, first to slave traders, and then he's sold again when he gets to Egypt. And then he's framed for a crime that he didn't commit. And the reason he was punished is because he wouldn't commit the crime. Potiphar's wife, his master's wife, accused him of trying to rape her because he wouldn't go to bed with her. And then ultimately, he's thrown in prison. And so basically, that's Joseph's resume so far. And at this point in the story, nobody's looking out for Joseph. 
Yeah, perhaps that's where your story intersects with Joseph's. You feel like nobody's looking out for you, like nobody has your back. And yet in spite of those unbelievably tough circumstances, Joseph continued to respond as if God was right there with him the whole time. And that brings me to the question we left off with last time. And it's the question we're going to end with this time as well. How would someone in your circumstances respond if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? I mean, you know how people in your circumstances normally react. You know what's expected of people in your circumstances. But how would someone in your circumstances respond if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? That there's more to the story than meets the eye. That your current circumstances are simply a chapter of your life story. They're not the entire story. So back to Joseph's story. Following the accusation, Joseph's master imprisons him. And we'll pick up the story there. This is Genesis 39, 20 to 21. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. Now, this is the craziest part of the story to me. While Joseph was being punished for something he wouldn't do, while he's being treated unfairly, God is with Joseph. See, these are moments when we want to say, God, where are you? Right? God says, I'm, I'm right here with you. Well, it doesn't seem like, it doesn't feel like you're right here with me. God says, I'm right here with you. So while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness. Now the word translated kindness in our English text, it's a Hebrew word that means loving kindness. It's a covenant word. And in fact, throughout most of our English Old Testament, it's translated as loving kindness. The implication is that Joseph considered himself to be in some sort of a covenant relationship with a God who hadn't done much of anything for him lately. In fact, what did this loving kindness look like? Well, the author continues and he tells us what this loving kindness looks like. He showed him kindness and granted him favor. Okay, if only it had stopped there. Granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now, this is a problem for us. Because in our way of thinking, if God is with you and if God is for you, you do not have a relationship with a prison warden, right? In fact, if God is with you and God's for you, you're not in prison in the first place. You're certainly not in prison because you've been accused of something you didn't do and found guilty of something you weren't guilty of. I'm just making this part up, but I'm sure at times Joseph must have thought, I wish God would go be with someone else for a change, right? Like, God, go be with my brothers or, or go be with Potiphar's wife. I need a break from all this with. Well, months go by, years go by, no weekends off. I, this doesn't feel like a story. It doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. And of course, Joseph isn't going anywhere. And then, seemingly unrelated, Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's butler have a falling out with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is so angry with them, he puts them in prison. In fact, he puts them in the same prison where Joseph is. And then the story has a strange twist. This is Genesis chapter 40 and verse 4. The captain of the guard, okay, he runs the prison, the captain of the guard, assigned them, the butler and the baker, to Joseph, and he attended them. 
after they had been in custody for some time, okay, let's pause here because some time means a good deal of time goes by. The story is compressed like most narratives, but we need to realize how slow this process can be from our human perspective, okay? Well, moving along, Pharaoh's butler and baker have disturbing dreams on the same night. And Joseph notices that they're disturbed by something, and it's kind of a funny part of the story. Here they are in a dungeon, and Joseph is serving them breakfast one morning, and he actually says to them, hey guys, why do you look so sad today? And both of them share that they had a very disturbing, vivid dream. They can remember the details. They're both convinced that the dreams mean something, but they have no idea how to interpret their dreams. And then Joseph says, do not interpretations belong to God? Joseph is still believing, still trusting. Even in the midst of these crazy circumstances, he's continuing to respond rather than react. And then he says to the butler and the baker, tell me your dreams. So the butler goes first. He tells Joseph this elaborate dream and Joseph smiles and says, I've got some good news for you. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your position. Now, of course, Butler doesn't know if Joseph's just making this up or not, but it's certainly a positive outcome to his dream. So he seems to accept it as truth. Now, at this point in the story, we discover something about Joseph that's true of all of us. I mean, as much as Joseph had a sense that God was with him, he was not enjoying his circumstances in prison. I mean, he despised his circumstances. He wasn't some sort of superhero, even though he had a superpower. He was not immune to pain. And so he says to the butler, look, when your dreams come true, when you're finally out of here, when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Like perhaps a different kind of kindness than my God is showing me at this point. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. So even though God was with Joseph, Joseph felt what we would have all felt. He was as frustrated as we would be. And so he says to the butler, look, you're my only way out. Remember me when this dream comes true. Well, meanwhile, the baker's sitting there hearing all this and he's thinking, hey, my turn, my turn. So Joseph says, okay, tell me about your dream. And the baker explains his very detailed dream. And when he's finished, Joseph shakes his head and says, gee, that, that's a tough one. Afraid I can't help you. Actually, that's not what he said. It's probably what he should have said. But he looks at the baker and says, well, here's what your dream means. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift off your head and impale your body on a pole. Whew. Little TMI, don't you think? Apparently, Joseph was in a really bad mood that morning. He should have just stopped with that, but he didn't. He continued. He said, oh, yeah, and there's more to your dream. Okay, and the birds will eat away your flesh. Have a nice day, Baker. Anyone else need a dream interpreted this morning? Well, sure enough, three days later, it's Pharaoh's birthday. And just like Joseph predicted, he restored the cupbearer and beheaded and impaled the baker. Now, think about this. 
At that point, Joseph waits expectantly, right? Because he knows what's going to happen next. As soon as these dreams come true, just like he predicted, he knows the butler's going to go to Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, you're not going to believe this. While I was in your dungeon, I met a Hebrew boy who predicted this would happen. And so Joseph can't wait. And I bet every time somebody banged on the door of the dungeon, Joseph was thinking, this is my day, baby. I'm out of here. I mean, every time there was a guest, every time there was a visitor, every time the warden called his name, Joseph had to be thinking, this is the day. I'm out of here. But the text tells us that the chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And yet, this is the faithful young man, now an older man, that God was supposedly with. And are you ready for this? Two years go by. Two years. And then suddenly, again, unrelated to anything happening in the dungeon, Pharaoh has a series of disturbing dreams. Nobody can interpret the dreams. And finally, the butler remembers Joseph as that V8 moment, like, whoa, he says to Pharaoh, hey, Pharaoh, remember a couple years ago when we had that falling out? Yeah, I hate to bring that up, but, but you put me in the dungeon, which I'm sure I deserved. But while I was there, there was a young Hebrew man, and he interpreted my dream correctly. And the text tells us that immediately Pharaoh sent for Joseph, and he was quickly brought from the dungeon. When he had shaved and changed his clothes, he came before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream. And no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Okay, what happens next are perhaps the most courageous words ever spoken by anyone in history. I mean, here is this foreigner for whom God had done nothing lately. This is his big break. He hasn't smelled this good or looked this good in years. And Joseph stands before the most powerful man in the world, his ticket out, and says, I cannot do it. And at that point, the butler's over in the corner. He's squirming, thinking, oh, no. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. And here comes the courageous statement. I cannot do it, Joseph replied to Pharaoh. But God, but God... Okay, it's that little phrase that's dangerous, but God. Seems like an innocent comment in our culture, but you have to understand that Pharaoh thought he was a God. Yeah, Pharaoh believed in other gods, but in his mind, clearly the gods of the Egyptians were more powerful than the Hebrew God. And here's this foreigner who has this one opportunity for freedom, and he says, Pharaoh, I cannot do it, but God, like the real God, the one true God, will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now, at this point, I'm guessing everybody in the royal courtroom thought that that might be the end for this young Hebrew boy. But fortunately for Joseph, Pharaoh was more curious than he was offended. And so Pharaoh explains his two dreams to Joseph, and Joseph listens patiently. And then it's quiet. And Joseph looks at Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, here's what your dreams mean. For the next seven years, there's going to be an abundant grain harvest in Egypt. There will be so much grain, you won't even know what to do with it. But then after those seven years, there will be a famine where nothing is going to grow. In fact, the seven years of plenty will not even be remembered because the famine that follows will be so severe. There's silence. No one says anything. 
And then Joseph does the unthinkable. He leans in and begins to tell Pharaoh what to do. He begins to advise Pharaoh. Says, Pharaoh, here's what you need to do. You need to appoint somebody and put them in charge of this problem. There needs to be somebody who wakes up every single day focused on solving this problem and preparing Egypt during the seven years of plenty for the seven years of famine. And the Bible says, the plan seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his officials. So Pharaoh asked them, can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the spirit of God. And then this is so amazing. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God your Hebrew God, has made all this known to you. There is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace. He makes him the prime minister of Egypt. And all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow. Now, Joseph may have been thinking, yeah, that's what Potiphar said as well. Well, anyway, Joseph goes to work. He begins preparing Egypt for the seven years of famine. In fact, the text says that Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain, like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. What he did was brilliant. He built storehouses in all the major cities and purchased the grain from the people. And seven years after this time of plenty, the rain stopped Nothing will grow. So the people of Egypt began to starve. And then Joseph opened up these storehouses in the primary cities and sold grain in Pharaoh's name to all the people. Well, as is the case with all famines, it spread across the borders to the surrounding regions, all the way up north of Egypt to where Joseph's family lived. So Jacob and his sons, Joseph's brothers, they began to starve as well. And this is where the story takes a very interesting twist. Here's what happens next. This is Genesis 42.1. When Jacob, Joseph's father, learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? Like, do something. I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. And here is where the drama begins. The stage is set, right? Fortunes have been reversed. Joseph is 40 years old. His brothers have not seen him since he was 17 years old. And this will be the ultimate test of Joseph's superpower, the ultimate test of his willingness to respond rather than react. I mean, we all know how Joseph is expected to react, right? It's payback time. If we put ourselves in his position, we know exactly what we would probably do if we were Joseph. Well, the story continues. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land. He's the second most powerful person in Egypt, which means he's for all practical purposes, the second most powerful person in the world. Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger. Okay, try to imagine this moment. I mean, Joseph remembers the terror of having his clothes stripped from him when he was thrown into that empty well. He remembers the dampness of the pit, the fear of wondering, are they going to abandon me? He remembers the leer of the slave traders, the humiliation of being sold on an auction block. 
He remembers the hopelessness of prison. And then he remembers the despair at being forgotten by the butler. But Joseph does the most remarkable thing. For a while, as he's trying to make up his mind, he toys with his brothers. He actually finds out from them that their father's still alive and that they have yet another brother who's not with them, Benjamin. And so he sends them back, but keeps one of them as a hostage. And it just goes on and on, chapter after chapter, as he's trying to decide what he's going to do. Why? Well, he's trying to figure out, have they really changed or are they still the brothers they used to be? And finally, after this long back and forth situation, it's pretty fascinating. Finally, at the end, Joseph engages his superpower in a way that defies expectation. He defies certainly his own instinct and his own emotions. So Joseph employs his superpower one more time. Okay, his brothers are all gathered with him. By this time, they brought Benjamin along. So all 11 brothers are present. And he sends everyone else out of the room. They're on their knees and suddenly they're all alone with the prime minister of Egypt and they're so confused. And then Joseph stares at each of them and announces this. Just imagine this moment. I am Joseph, your brother. And they look up and see that 17-year-old boy in the face of that 40-year-old man. And who knows what's racing through their minds at this point. But before they can say anything, Joseph says, is my father still living? And the text says, but his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. It's because they expected him to react like everyone does rather than respond with his superpower. They didn't need to be terrified in his presence because in their absence, Joseph had lived every single day of his life as if God was present. And now when it counted the most, Joseph once again chose not to react, but to respond. He forgave his brothers. Joseph says this, come close to me. <laughs> that may have taken a while for them to do that. <laughs> when they had done so, he said, I am your brother, Joseph. And I guess he just can't help himself. The one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now, can I just pause and say something about this real quick? When we're able to believe and respond as if God is with us, we gain a perspective on what's behind our circumstances that we can't gain any other way. And this is such a powerful reminder of that because Joseph is able to come to the conclusion, the reason I'm here, the reason I went through everything I went through, God had a plan in my suffering. God had a plan in the injustice. God had a plan in circumstances I wouldn't have chosen for myself. A plan for me being forgotten, a plan for me being sold into slavery, not once, but twice. See, when we choose to respond, looking back, we will have a perspective on our suffering that we cannot gain any other way. But if all we do is react in life, not only will we not be better for it, we will never have the perspective that allows us to move successfully into our future. Now, what nobody knew about this encounter was that God's entire plan of salvation for the whole world hung by the thread of Joseph's response. I mean, before him, was the nation of Israel. The 12 brothers represented the 12 tribes of Israel who would become the nation Israel through whom the Messiah would come. 
and the Messiah would do for the world exactly what Joseph did that day for his brothers. Forgive. That's why I said last week, never, ever, ever underestimate the power of a measured, faith-filled response. Well, the story wraps up this way. Joseph brings his entire family to Egypt and he provides for them for years and years and years. Eventually his father Jacob dies and once they bury Jacob and have this elaborate funeral, they all come back to the land of Egypt and his brothers get together, the 10 brothers who sold him into slavery and they realize, "Uh uh-oh, perhaps Joseph was just waiting for our father to die before he exacts his revenge. And so they go to Joseph and the text says this, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph continues to respond rather than react. Here's what he said, these famous words. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Guys, don't you understand that God was in this? God worked through this. He said, you intended to harm me. That day when you kidnapped me, when you stripped me of my clothes, threw me into that empty well, yeah, you had the power. The odds were in your favor. There was evil in your heart. You created circumstances that generally transform victims into perpetrators. But not this time. Not this time. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. Wow. Don't ever, ever, ever forget this, people. Incorporating this superpower into your life may be the biggest secret to living the best life possible. See, it protects you from feeling like a victim in life. Joseph saw life from God's perspective, and as a result, God's intention became a reality through one man's unprecedented, circumstance-defying responses. Listen, each of Joseph's responses may have seemed fairly insignificant at the time, but all together, they were a part of the unfolding story of his redemption, my redemption, and your redemption. They were all a part of God's plan of salvation for the world. Here's the thing. Our superpower, our respondability, gives us the potential to live the best life possible. And we don't get to choose our circumstances in life. You know this. It's part of the problem, right? But our response, your response is what determines whether or not you'll be better for it. And it all boils down to this enormous, liberating, destiny-altering question. How would someone in my circumstances respond if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? Your answer to that question is your invitation to exercise your superpower. And acting on that answer It's your best way forward. Let's face it. We are no better than our responses in life. But our responses have the potential to make us better and to make the world better. So one more time, how would someone in my circumstances respond if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? If they were absolutely confident that there was more to the circumstances than meets the eye? That your current circumstances are not the whole story? They're simply a chapter in the story and that God has chosen to be a part of your story. And God is going to connect the dots of your responses to do something great for you and through you. You have a superpower, your respond ability.
use it. If you do, you'll be better for it. The people around you will be better for it. And who knows, perhaps the world will be better for it as well. Unleash your superpower. Unleash it and start living the best life possible. Pray with me. Lord, that is my prayer for myself, for my brothers and sisters in Christ. That we would recognize we do not have to react. We can respond. We don't have to react to our circumstances in the way that the world would expect us, in the way that just comes natural to us, in a way that kind of feeds our flesh. Instead, we can respond in faith. We can respond as if you are a part of our circumstances, that you are working in and through all of them, the good, the bad, the ugly, every part of our lives, that you are there with us. You'll never leave us or forsake us. And you have a plan. And if we will respond in the right way, not the way the enemy would tempt us to respond, not the way the world would tell us to respond, not the way our own flesh, our own instincts would respond, but with a measured, thought-through, godly, faith-filled response. If we begin to do that, it'll change our lives. It will thwart evil. It will redeem suffering. It will give us a path forward that is a path of hope. So God, I pray that we would ask that question. How should we respond in this circumstance, believing that you are a part of it, that you are right there with us? God, would you help us to enact our superpower, not to be victims of our circumstances, not to react, but to respond in and through the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.